Amen. Amen. Thank you. Let's bow to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Father, we come to you this morning and we're so very grateful. Grateful that you allow us to come and worship you. And God, help us to not miss the focus, to not miss the point. And that is Jesus Christ risen, risen and reigning on high. And God, may you meet with us, may you minister to our hearts through your word. And we pray this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. I can guarantee you a couple things. I'll not be as cute as the kids. I will not be as glorious as the choir and the the orchestra. And I won't look half as good as you do. But I pray that the Word of God will be an encouragement to your heart today, that it will challenge your heart, and that will be faithful to His Word. As I thought about this morning, and I looked forward to the day, and I know I knew all the work and effort that was going in, especially through a choir and orchestra and others, the grave concern I had was this, that we will begin to think, and that our kids will begin to think, and that our guests might think, that this is what Easter is all about. That it's about a bunch of, of beautiful, glorious singing and playing and praising. And that's wonderful. It's good. But may we not miss the point that Easter is truly about Jesus Christ and Him risen and reigning. You know, 50 days after Jesus was raised from the dead, there is a a thing called Pentecost. And Jeremy Slade, our elder, read for you this morning from the passage in Acts chapter 2. Just 50 days. 50 days after Jesus had risen. And you think about it, those people were all around while Jesus was alive. They, they knew Him. They knew about Him at the very least. They'd, they'd seen some of what He did. And on that day, the disciples who had been waiting there in Jerusalem, about 150 of them had been waiting... On that day, they began to preach. And when they began to preach, the Spirit of God came down on them. And these people that were gathered from all around, people from from all around the region, from Egypt to Rome to Parthenia to to Elam, they, they heard these men who were preaching in their tongue, but they heard them in their mother tongue, in their native tongue. And now, I know here this morning, we have people from all over the United States and, and a few from, from elsewhere, Ukraine, Holland, Germany, right? And it would be as though I stood up to speak in my native tongue, Kansan, <laughs> and people from Alabama and Mississippi and New York and Holland, they all heard me talking in exactly their tongue, except even more impressive, Right? Because their native tongue was so far different from what these uneducated Galilean disciples spoke. They were sort of like from Kansas or Alabama, right? And as they spoke, these people were hearing them in their own voice. And and they began to wonder, what on earth is going on? They were, some said, perplexed. Like, what's happening? How could this be possible? Good question. We'll spend some time answering that in just a moment. And others were just, these guys got to be drunk. That's the only explanation for this because nothing else makes sense. 
Well, Peter stood up. Peter, one of the disciples, stood up and began to explain. First of all, he explained that no, these guys weren't drunk. It's too early in the day for that. And this was predicted by the prophet Joel back in, in, in Joel's prophecy chapter 2. It said, not possible. This is, this is actually prophesied that this would occur hundreds of years ago. But he didn't just stick with the miracle. Because, folks, that's what we get hung up on. Just like today, we can get hung up on the trappings, on the show, right? And in Jesus' life, that's what happened. Many, many people were drawn, the crowds were drawn because Jesus was raising the dead, changing water into wine. He was making the blind to see and the lame to walk. And who wouldn't want to go see that, right? I mean, just yesterday, my lovely wife and daughter were at Meyer, and something was going down, right? And they stuck around to see, right? They were half an hour later getting home because they wanted to see. We are drawn to a show, right? What do we all do when something happens? Well, not all of us. Some of us are still trying to figure this thing out. But some of the younger ones whip this bad boy out, and they begin to video it. Because it's like, not only are they amazed, they want to draw an even bigger crowd. And it becomes about whatever is right in front of us, and we miss the point. People miss the point of Jesus' life all through his life. And we see evidence of that at Pentecost. But Peter moves very quickly from the miracles of that day to the message of the gospel. And that's where we begin our sermon today is in Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Because you see, Peter knew that the miraculous can be confusing. The show can actually distract us. But the message is the delivery of the truth. The facts. Just the facts, ma'am. And you'll see that Peter didn't get real showy with what he had to say. He just got down to business. And you see, he makes the gospel the key. And he makes the resurrection the lens through which we make sense of all of life. And the first point that he gets to is he begins with this man, Jesus. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know. Peter gets right to the point of all that is happening today, and that's Jesus. You see, Jesus alone is God's publicly verified agent of the gospel. He is, well, there's a lot of ambassadors of the gospel, we read in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We are ambassadors of the gospel. If you're a believer in Christ, you're an ambassador of the gospel. You're to share the gospel. But Jesus alone is the agent of the gospel. What does that mean? He's the one through whom the gospel made, it came to be. He's the one that made it happen, right? That's different from an agent for a professional athlete, right? The athlete's the one that sort of makes stuff happen. The, the agent helps them make sure they're funded, right, and taken care of. But Jesus is the centerpiece, if you will, the sole agent, and he was verified by God. And you know what? It's interesting that Peter makes the note that they knew this. 
that they had seen him publicly attested to or verified by God himself. How so? Every miracle that Jesus did, every work that he did, every amazing, wondrous, active miracle that he did was just God's stamp of saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. This is the Messiah, the sent one. He is the one. You see, we might ask, you know, so what? What did this hick from the sticks of Galilee have to do with them and the events of Pentecost? And so Peter wants to be impeccably clear with them. Everything, everything pointed back to Jesus. You see, the Son was sent by the Father in order that he might live perfectly in the Spirit and live a perfect, righteous, holy life leading up to what comes next. And what happened to him? What happened to this Jesus? Well, we're going to find out that what's next because Peter tells us, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You see, Jesus... This one who was just a hick from the sticks of Nazareth was the one that God sent, verified, on a mission. And that mission was focused on one place, on one moment in history. And that moment in history was the cross. If you were here on Friday night, we talked a lot about this on Good Friday. It is good, as we pointed out there, because of what the results were of the cross. You see, Jesus' crucifixion is central to God's redemptive plan, and there's something else at the cross. And it is evidence of humanity's sin, its depravity, its brokenness. It it, it put both on full display. It fulfilled God's redemptive plan, but it also showed us at our worst. This Jesus... Peter says in verse 23, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Peter says to them, you know what, you thought you were dealing with this Jesus problem. You see, lots of people were starting to follow Jesus and the the leaders were getting pretty concerned. So they killed him. They thought, we got him. We're taking care of the Jesus problem once and for all. Put it to rest. Little did they know, little did they know that they were simply being used to fulfill the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. In other words, they simply carried out in their murders and conspiracies, they just carried out the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And you say... Did God murder his son? Did Jesus commit suicide by willingly go to the cross? You know what? As in many things in Scripture, we we wrestled through how exactly does that work? You see, God sent his son to die, but he didn't make one single person conspire against him or murder him. Sinful man willingly, willingly took Jesus and put him on a cross and crucified him. The sinless, perfect Son of God. God sent, we find in John 1.11, God sent him and he came unto his own 
and his own received him not. They'd been on this idea of taking out Jesus for quite a while. You see, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, and when he raised Lazarus from the dead, it, it created quite a stir, as it would, right? You would get a little bit stirred up to know that someone died, went in the grave for three days, bound up like a mummy, and came walking out. That got a lot of people's attention. And at that, it also got the attention of the religious leaders, and they said, um, we find in John, we need to take this guy out. And they made plans to do so, and they, and they carried it out. So here at the cross, we see the plan of God to bring redemption, to bring payment for sin, meeting up with the heinous sin of man. What could be worse? We think of a lot of bad things in our world, and there are a lot of bad things. I listen to some of these podcasts, Crime Junkies, as well as you know The Deck and some of these other things that you might listen to, and I am just reminded over and over just how awful Humanity can be. But you know what? Nothing is more awful than to think that God sent His Son who lived a perfect, sinless life. We, we can't even fathom. We can't wrap our heads around that. But, but He lived a sinless life. And He was so hated and so despised that they would rather crucify Him and have an obvious thief, Barabbas, released. And not only that, then to have him beaten and scourged and lied about and then strung out on a tree and nails in his hands and feet and left to die. That's, that's beyond our understanding to think how we human beings could be that murderous. And yet, here, while our sin is put on such display... The mercy of God shine brighter. You see, great mercy and great sin go hand in hand. What opportunity for God to display His mercy in the greatest way than to take the perfect Son and say, you don't deserve my Son. I know. But you need Him. You desperately need what He has to give. And it became the centerpiece of his redemptive plan. First, Paul said this about the cross. He, it was so central to everything he did that I decided, he said, to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. While the resurrection is essential, and we'll talk about that shortly, with, without the cross message, without the, without the cross's message would be pointless Without the resurrection, I'm sorry. Without the resurrection, the cross's message would be absolutely pointless. Think about this. The cross is where the gospel is seen most clearly, but the sinless Savior who died, how do we know it was effective? We see its effectiveness as we look forward at the raise. Jesus said, or Paul said, that if Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile and you still are in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. See, through the resurrection, we know that Christ's redemptive mission was fulfilled. One person put it this way, and I may have to explain this to some of the younger people. Okay, He said that, it, that, that Christ made the payment for sin on the cross, but it's through the resurrection that we know that the check cleared. 
Okay? Now, some of you don't know what a check is. Right? Um, and, and so, you know, the best thing, way I can explain it is that the funds have been released for you. If you get, you get a Venmo payment, right? Sometimes it takes two or three days for that to be released. Well, three days, three days after the crucifixion of Jesus, where he paid the debt in full for all sin, for all time, three days later, it was as though God said the check is cleared. Paid in full. Paid in full. You see, through the resurrection, we truly can know that God's mission, redemptive mission, was fulfilled. It says in verse 24, God raised him up. Who? Jesus of Nazareth. The one that he had attested to, publicly verified. The one that he sent on a redemptive plan and man murderously killed. This one. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. Now, pangs, that's not a word I have ever used anywhere else. Okay? Probably not one that you've used in the past week. Actually, the literal translation of this would be birth pains. The birth pains of death couldn't hold on to him. They, 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 They squeezed and tried to hang on, but they couldn't because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Death could not hold him because God willed it to be. In Acts 26-23, Paul, later preaching before Festus, says that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to our people and to the Gentiles. You see, that it was predicted beforehand that Jesus Christ would be raised and that it w- there was no way, if God predicted it, if God promised it, that anything in all eternity could keep Jesus Christ in that grave. God raised him from the dead. What's going to stop God? Right? There's nothing going to stop God. And so, why could Jesus not stay in the grave? Because God willed it to be. Jesus Christ, suffering a death, paid our sin debt fully. And so the check has cleared. Sin debt, our sin debt. If you have by faith trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, your sin debt is paid in full. And, and there's enough available that for everyone who could ever believe, no matter how great a sinner or how many sins they have committed, that there is enough in the account to pay for everyone in full. That's an amazing thought. That's an amazing thought for a guy who struggles with sin every week, every day, every minute. It's a struggle. And, and yet, God in His mercy paid a sin debt that covers all of Stephen Schultz's sin. And He'll cover, He has sufficient funds in the account to pay for every single sin for everyone who will call upon the name of the Lord. As Peter had just quoted out of Joel in verse 21, all who call upon the name of the Lord, what? Shall be saved. How can, how can we know that so surely? Because it's the infinite divine payment of Jesus Christ that has an account ready and willing and available for each and every one who will come to him in faith. And that is the hope, the hope of this gospel. The one who trusts in Christ will never have an overdraft. The one who trusts in Christ will never get a notice of insufficient funds, no matter how great our sin. You see, though, this 
middle portion of our passage here in Acts chapter 2 contains a lot of prophecy. Prophecy that was from a thousand years prior. Prophecy given by the, the, the psalmist David, King David. And he had some, some things he said that, frankly, that the Jewish people would have believed were more of, of royal psalms, of, of him lifting up himself as king. Well, Peter's about to help us understand it. And he makes it impeccably clear. Here's what, here's what Peter used in his sermon um, from Psalm 16. It says, For David says concerning him, Who's him? Jesus of Nazareth. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced, for my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now, we understand why the Jews would believe that David was writing that about himself. He was writing it in the first person, right? But Peter makes it clear that actually this is pointing forward to Jesus. How do we know that? Well, Peter addresses that exact question. Like, how do we, how would you know that that's about Jesus and not David? Well, what happened to David? He died. What did they do with him then? They buried him. How do we know that? Well, Peter says in their day that his tomb was still among them. They were pretty confident that David died, was died, he died, was buried, and had not risen again. He, his body saw corruption. Here's where he says that, verse 29. Brothers, I, say, I may say to you with confidence. In other words, I am, I'm doggone sure about this. About the patriarch, patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that he would set one of his descendants on the throne... Ah, this Jesus of Nazareth, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. He rose three days later. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. And when he says all, he's not referring to them. He's talking about all, we all, those that you heard speaking in tongues, we disciples were witnesses. The whole crowd knew that David was dead, been dead a thousand years. But not all of them had seen Jesus risen from the dead. They had seen him alive. They may have heard that Jesus was, was alive, but they weren't all witnesses. But these guys, these disciples were witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. They saw the risen Lord with their own eyes. Thomas touched his wounded side. So, we've got Jesus... Sent from the Father, the sole agent. We got Jesus, who went to the cross, was murdered by human, human hands. And we've got Jesus risen from the dead. That still doesn't explain to me why these dudes were speaking in what we call tongues. How they could be talking, these Galilean hicks, and, and yet people from all these different countries understanding them. This still doesn't explain it to me. Jesus being alive doesn't explain that. So what explains that? And this is the part that Jesus is not just risen. We celebrate his, that the fact that Jesus is risen on this Easter day, but it's so much more. Jesus Christ is not only risen, but He reigns. 
He is alive, but He's not alive just here on earth. He he is alive at the throne room of heaven. And how do we know this? Well, that's what this Pentecost day was all about, actually. It was a demonstration, a public demonstration, that the the risen King is on His throne. See, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is evidence of Jesus' ascension and reign. Jesus had promised it. Jesus said in John 16, 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. This outpouring of the Spirit of God was testimony to Jesus' current exalted state. Fifty days later, didn't happen fifty days later, but the demonstration came fifty days later after his, his resurrection. This exaltation had already been sort of implied back in verse 30, but in verse 33 it becomes explicit. It says this, Being therefore exalted, At the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David didn't ascend into the heavens, but he himself says this, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Bottom line, this is a public demonstration that God has put, has raised up Jesus Christ and He is seated at the right hand. Now, we, we can spend a lot of time talking about the Trinity, okay? But there are three parts to the Trinity. God is one. Yet he is three persons in that one. That's, I know that's, come along with, we can do some discipleship later and talk about that. Yet we know this. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are all acting as one. And here's what's going on. The Father is in, in lead. The Son has now at the right hand his sole agent. And the Holy Spirit has been sent to do what? To do what? To make just exciting little things happen like these tongues? No, on this day, on Pentecost, we see the church begin. And, and that work that was begun in those people over 2,000 years ago is the same work that is going on in the lives of believers today. It is about people who are coming to repentance and faith in Christ, who desperately need Christ and are then being transformed into the image, into the likeness, and we say into Christ-likeness, being made to look more like Jesus. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, to help us to be, Jesus said, convicted of sin and righteousness. To be convinced that our sin is sin, and that righteousness is righteousness. Right? And to comfort us, to, to empower us to live for this risen King. This one, this Jesus, at the right hand of God, was fulfilling His promise. The people, the disciples knew it. They'd heard the promise. Now they see it happen in front of them, and they're like, He really is there! I mean, you ever think about this? Back years ago, when people would head out on like a 
across the seas voyage, across the Atlantic to England or around the world, how would their loved ones know that they got there? You ever think about that? I mean, maybe it's just me. I'm a history guy. And you're like, how in the world? You couldn't telegraph. You couldn't call. You didn't have satellite. I mean, it's going to take a long time to, to get anything. All they could do was they would send a messenger back if they, there was someone going. They would send a messenger back from where they got to, and it would take months sometimes before a message was received. This is kind of like that. It's like Jesus gets to heaven, and how else is he going to communicate this, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm who I am, I'm where I said I'd be, and I'm doing what I told you I would do. He sent his Holy Spirit back to say, it's done. Go. Go, disciples. Go and be ambassadors for Christ. You now have the Holy Spirit to empower you, to enable you to go and fulfill the mission I gave you. Go. And as the reigning Lord and Messiah, He is sitting on His throne, fulfilling His promises to His people. But He's not only the reigning King who sits on the throne fulfilling His promises to His people. He's also the one who has authority over all. He is the one who, who calls out and says, Come unto me, all you who are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He said, he's the one who's able to make it so when he says, Call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. All that Peter's doing here is just spitting facts. He's just telling the truth of what he knows, of what he has witnessed. Of what he has seen. He's not hyping it. The hype has already happened. They heard these crazy tongues happening. He doesn't need to hype a thing. He has to simply tell the truth. You know, many that day could have probably been swayed one way or another with some emotional plea, some sort of manipulation of our emotions. And that, but you know the, the benefit of that is very surfaceful. Because if I can manipulate you with feelings, someone else can come along and do the same. Our feelings are so fickle. But if the facts are the facts, if the truth is the truth, and you are then confronted with this reality, and that's exactly what happened that day. They were confronted with the fact that this Jesus of Nazareth, who had been verified by, by God, sent by God, and they had been part of murdering, either their own hands or in the conspiracy or in the supporting of it in yelling crucify. This one was not only risen, that would be enough for them to go, uh-oh, where's he at? But when you hear that he is reigning and what you have witnessed before you today is his verification that he is on the throne, all of a sudden... You get that feeling like a million times over that you get when you drive by the state trooper at 15 over. <gasps> and you look up in the rearview mirror just sort of peeking. You don't want to look too much because, you know, you don't make it obvious. But you're cut to the heart. You're like, oh no, I have, I know, I know a fact. I have sinned. I have violated the law. Okay. And I also know that one back there has the authority to deal with me, right? Well, all of a sudden, these were cut to the heart. 
they realized they had not only violated the law of this one, they had murdered this one. And now he is on the throne of heaven. And when they received, when they accepted what Peter said as the truth, it says that they were cut to the heart. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? What, what do I do? We know what women do when they go past the state trooper and he pulls them over. They smile and give tears, right? And, and I go, oh, please, my husband will kill me. Um, it's okay. Um, but how should we respond? They responded with a question. How should we respond to the risen and reigning king? First of all, with knowledge-driven conviction. Now, what do we mean by that? Peter called on them to, quote him, know for certain, he said, know for certain. He did not try again to manipulate them. He was preaching the facts and wanted them to be confidently certain, secure in their, in their belief that this unwavering view about who Jesus was, what Jesus had done, and where Jesus was, and the authority that he had. He wanted them to be unwaveringly clear on that. Because he knew if they were, if they understood and accepted that, that he knew what would follow. And that was conviction. Some of us struggle with that. Just to be very honest. We struggle at this point. This faith point. We've maybe heard these facts a thousand times. Maybe it's your first time today. But you struggle believing that these things are true. That Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You struggle believing that He lived a sinless life. You, as, as the perfect God-man. You struggle believing that He died on the cross and rose again from the third day. You struggle believing this idea that He, that he somehow rose again. You're struggling. But I, I, my prayer for you today is that you will be not convinced by me, not manipulated by me to believe, but that you will be convinced of the truth. And that is that the truth is, all of that is true. All of it's true. And if it's true, then you have some examination to do. You first of all need to come to an understanding, a knowledge-driven conviction. That's what that is. Conviction is that settled belief. That is faith. I believe what God has said about His Son, about what He did, and I believe it. But there's a a next step they took when they came to that point. And that was spiritual examination. How should we respond to the risen ranking? Just like they did. When they became convinced, when they heard it, they asked the question, what shall we do? Reminds me of an account in Acts chapter 16 when uh, Paul and Silas had been in prison, been in jail. Earthquake came, it shook the jail, and all the, the prison doors fell open. And the jailer was like about ready to commit suicide because he knew if one prisoner escaped, the, the Romans would come and take his life the next day. But Paul cries out and said, hey, hey, we're, we're all here. Don't, don't do anything crazy. We're all here. And the jailer comes and falls before them and he says, men, what shall I do to be saved? What shall I do? He was struck in wonder. Now, I don't know if he'd heard them singing songs or what, but that man that day believed. 
And in verse 38, here's how Paul answered the question of these people on the day of Pentecost with their question, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This same Spirit, right, that you've seen at work today. For the promise is for you and your children, you and those who come after, and here's the good news for us, and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them. Pause there. This is only part of his sermon. So in case you're thinking, dude, you could have just read that and then that would have been the sermon. That was all his. No, he used many other words. Okay, so I promise not to use too many more words today. But here's what here's the essence of what he said. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And he wasn't just being derogatory. He wasn't just specifically just thinking about those people in that day. Every generation is crooked, right? We've all gone astray, each one to their own way. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's not just our day. And it says, so those who received his word were baptized. And there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. About 3,000 people that day. Why so many? You know what, folks? Remember, 50 days after Pentecost, these people had witnessed Jesus' works and his wonders. They stood there convicted in their hearts of of the fact that they may have been in that mob yelling, crucify him. And they realized that one day they would stand before Almighty God and give an account of themselves, this one whom they had crucified. So they were full of... Knowledge-driven conviction. They were convinced. They were spiritually examining. What shall we do? What can we do? And Peter's answer is believe or to repent and be baptized. And some have struggled with that. As we've noted, those who who are are baptized. Well, not as we've noted. And Paul Peter notes in verse forty-one. Skip on down just a little bit. That those who received his word were baptized. And I bring that up because some will make a big deal about the fact that Peter says, repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. What about faith? Well, they've already had faith. They'd already, he says, received his word. How do we know that? Because they're already believing him enough to say, what do we do? They believed what he said was true. That's faith. And the minute faith is activated in the human heart, you're saved. And so what's, what's the response? What's the proper response? To repent. To turn from your sin. To turn from your way of living. And then outwardly express it. How do we do that? That was through baptism. Through faith-filled resolution, we could say. Because they, they demonstrated openly, publicly, what had already happened in their heart. And you say, okay, so it's about the water, just about the water. No, the water doesn't save anyone. He says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus. What's going on there? I thought Jesus said, be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right? Well, why just Jesus here? Again, I've heard people make a big deal about this. Well, What's happening here is they're Jews. They already believe in God. They believe in God's Spirit. They haven't been believing in Jesus. And at this point, he says to them, okay, be baptized in the name of Jesus. Oh, 
I don't know about that. They just crucified him. No, if you believe this is true and by faith you're trusting that what I've said is true, you need to be baptized in the name of Jesus because that's the one who's going to save you. He's the one that you need to trust in. And so that, I think that's helpful to understand that. And then others point out that, well, but he says for the forgiveness of sin. So when we dunk people in that tank right over there, that's when forgiveness happens, right? That's when your sins are cleansed away. Kind of looks that way. Be baptized in the, name of, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sin. You see, baptism is the external appeal of faith. It is the outward demonstration of faith that already resides in one's heart. It's, it's, by the time you get to baptism, you have already, you already have faith, right? You've already, you should, because otherwise we could go just dunk one person after another in the tank. And, and Charlemagne tried to do that in Europe, right? Thousands of years ago, a couple thousand, a thousand years ago. And he dunked people in the tank, in the rivers, thinking, well, now you're a Christian, now go and be a Christian. The water didn't change anybody. I mean, some of you know this is true. You've been watching The Mandalorian, right? And this season on The Mandalorian, Mando had, was, had, had sort of failed as a Mandalorian. He was one of the men of the way. Some of you are looking at me with blank stares. <laughs> most of you are over the, well, most of you are over the age of probably 50 or so, uh, looking at me in blank stares, but even some of the younger ones. Um, so The Mandalorian, a show on TV, he's, you know, sort of Star Wars spinoff. Um, this guy is part of the way, one of the way of the Mandalorians. And one of the things you can't do as a Mandalorian is take your helmet off. really makes it hard when you want to eat, but that's another story. Um, that They show you how that happens in the, in the show. Um, but in order to be restored to the way after removing his helmet, he is supposed to go, he's told, Back to the living waters on the planet of Mandaloria, beneath the, down beneath the mines. And he's to go and dip himself in the living waters. And he'll come up and be able to then bring de- evidence that he indeed was washed in the living waters. And he comes up out, he takes them back, and the, he is then brought back into the fold. Well, the funny thing is, when he goes into the water, he's sort of, I'm giving up way too much. But he goes into the waters and all of a sudden realizes that the bottom isn't where he thought it was and he goes falling down in all of his armor and someone else has to dive in after him. Well, what's really funny is, is that she too was not a keeper of the way. And she goes along with Mando and the story's told and they're like, oh yeah, not only you, Mando, but, you know, she is also redeemed. She's saved. She's now back part of the way. And all she did was dive in to save him. Right? It was all about the water. Folks, it is not about the water. It is about the act of faith in Christ that says, I am resting in his payment for my sin. And by the time I get there, I'm just telling everybody else what has already happened in here. And I don't know what your faith tradition is. I don't know where you come from. But to understand it differently goes against what we find in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, we read, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Mando could boast, I braved the journey to Mandaloria, and I went down into the mines, and you, you, you could brag about it. You could brag about, I, I got up my courage and I was baptized this morning. Big whoop. I 
got brave and dove off a high diving board in the pool one time. Didn't, didn't change my life. You going in that water does not change your life. Faith in Christ will change your life. So the question is this. On that day, these dear people, thousands of them, came to a realization, a fact-filled conviction, that Jesus was who he said he was, and that he'd done what he'd said he'd done, and that he was reigning on high. And that changed their lives. It changed their lives, and so much so that they would have, upon being baptized publicly in front of all these others, they would immediately have been cast out of the synagogue. They would have likely, many of them, lost their jobs, been cast out of their families, and then had to depend on one another. And that's exactly what we see at the end of Acts chapter 2, is that they begin to live in tight community with one another. Why? They had nowhere else to go. They had nowhere else to go. It changed their lives. And it changed their eternity. This morning, have you, by faith, trusted in Christ's work on your behalf? Have you accessed that account of payment for your sin? It's available and it's free today. Maybe many of you have done that. But you know what? You're struggling this morning living in light of the fact that Jesus Christ reigns. You would say that he is, but you would have a hard time proving it by your life. You struggle with a lack of peace. You struggle with, your, with, with what comes out of your mouth. You struggle with what's going on in your head, how you treat others. You live as though God is not on his throne. Anybody struggle with that? Every day. Every day. And I need to be reminded. And that's why every Sunday we get to come back and be reminded together and say, yes, he lives and he reigns. Right? And that's why once a year it's so good to do what we're doing today and say, yes, he lives and he reigns. Because we forget. And so this morning, I hope that you've been reminded that Jesus Christ is not only paid for your sin, but that he's risen and that he does reign. And because he reigned, it isn't just about making you a good, a good little boy or a good little girl. He, 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 he reigns and he sent his Holy Spirit to empower you, to comfort you, to help you. Those are words of a caring king. And, he's, and he cares for you. And so this morning, if you are living with the cares of the world on your shoulders, I appeal to you, like, like Peter says later in one of his epistles, cast all your cares upon him. Because the one who is on the throne of heaven cares for you. And friend, that may be the biggest message some of you need to hear today. Your king, risen and reigning king, cares for you. And we can go out and live in light of that truth. Let's pray. Gracious Father, as we come to you this morning, we thank you for our dear brother Peter and his boldness to stand before people that did not necessarily want to hear his message. Thank you, Lord, that you used him to proclaim this truth. And God, I pray that you would use this truth in our hearts today, that you would convince us of the reality of your Son's work on the cross through the resurrection and ascension. 
but that also those who are, 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 are believers today, that they would be encouraged to stand firm, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that because you are on your throne, their labor is not in vain. God, we thank you that your Son, Jesus Christ, is who he says he is, did what he said he, d- he, he, he did. He died for our sin. He rose again and reigns. And that he will do, he can do, because he does reign. He can fulfill all his promises to his people. We thank you, Lord God. May your Holy Spirit work in our hearts and in our minds, helping us to understand and illuminate these truths. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.